Each and every day, we put on our hard hats and our steel-toed boots, we kiss our families goodbye, and we begin the tough work to energize the great United States of America. For over 20 years, Scott Angel has led the fight to balance the three E's, environment, energy, and economy. Now, he's sitting down for a cup of coffee with the most influential energy leaders in the country to celebrate and elevate the American energy worker. This is Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA energy worker. Good day from the USA Energy Worker Studio in the heart of Cajun country. As we enjoy a strong cup of Mellow Joy coffee, stronger enough to put hair on your chest, as my old dad would say, as we sit down with America for a conversation about the importance of the USA Energy Worker. I'm your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, where our podcast always focuses on the contributions of our USA energy workers who are working safely and in a sustainable way to help balance the three E's of environment, energy, and economy. We all know nobody does it cleaner and smarter than the red, white, and blue, and it's always the right time to show appreciation to our energy workers. At USA Energy Workers, we absolutely believe in the old cliche. If you can read, thank a teacher. It's so true. Our teachers deserve our gratitude. We like to add to that cliche. If you can read at night in your warm home, thank a teacher and a USA Energy Worker. A couple of facts worth sharing and repeating about our traditional energy workers, our oil and gas workers. The workhorses, perhaps not the show horses, but the workhorses of the American energy portfolio. Waking up every day, putting on those steel toe boots and the hard hats, kissing families goodbye, and setting out to explore, develop, produce, transport, process, refine, and distribute the energy to our businesses, our families, our schools, our hospitals, our places of worship, our football stadiums, our police cars and fire trucks, to the halls of Congress, and to each state in the union. Let's hear it for our USA energy workers. And if you're not yet a fan of our oil and gas workers, maybe, just maybe, you can at least appreciate the fact that nearly 100% of the vaccines for COVID-19 were refrigerated and transported on the backs of the USA energy workers. So when they're not producing the BTUs, they're actually helping solve the world's largest health crisis, making products like eyeglasses and iPhones possible, making pharmaceuticals possible. In fact, over 6,000 everyday products made from oil and gas alone. To the haters, we say, just do it. Just stop using these products if you don't like it. We'll give you a week. We'll give you a month. Then we suggest you're going to take two aspirin and call us on your iPhone to let us know it's not going too good for you. Look, while we say we are in an energy transition, we think we like to say we are in an energy addition. There's room for all of the above, but only if you can compete. So we might want to take a page out of the late, great Bob Barker's book. 
you know, maybe it's time for us to say we got to play the prices right in the energy sector. And we would say to all those folks in the alternatives in the renewable world, there's room for you. You just got to get the price right. So we would say to all you folks, come on down. You're the next contestant on America's energy supply, but you got to be able to compete. You know, we've had six recessions in this country from 1973 to 2019, and they've all been preceded by a spike in energy prices. It's not debatable. As goes our access to affordable energy, so goes our economic performance. We sell more cars. We build more homes. We have a more robust retail and travel industry. And our food costs are certainly lower when we have affordable energy. I think right now some of the latest data that I've looked at is that on overall inflation, folks believe that energy inflation is driving about 40% of overall inflation. So affordable energy is important, and we believe, again, that nobody produces it better than the USA energy worker. So we keep into the facts. We certainly want to avoid politics, but I can tell you we need a new energy policy direction in this country. And some of those facts, again, avoiding politics, just calling it like it is, using well-documented facts. Candidate Biden says he will shut down drilling. Again, this is candidate Biden. Number two, White House hammers domestic producers while begging OPEC to produce more. Three, OPEC responds with a middle finger and an up yours reaction. Four, we tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help flood the market to try to lower prices. The result or the comparison it's like a Band-Aid on a cancer patient. We have the lowest level of stockpiles in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in over 40 years, yet prices still remain high. Six, interest rates go up. Seven, inflation hits 40-year highs. Eight, the president says the quiet part out loud at the last State of the Union address by advising Congress, quote, we will need oil for the next decade and beyond. Nine, in spite of that rhetoric, no policy pivot occurs. In fact, offshore lease sales continue to be canceled or delayed by the White House. Despite the fact that 74% of the oil we import into the United States has a higher carbon intensity than Gulf of Mexico production. Let me repeat that. Again, number nine. This White House has continued to delay and cancel lease sales and will be only hosting lease sales because the courts are making them do it. And they're doing this in the name of the environment. When, again, in spite of the fact that 74% of the oil we import into the United States has a higher carbon intensity than Gulf of Mexico production. Ten, the conclusion that we could say is we can observe, number one, we need it. Number two, the country is doing nothing to facilitate it. Three, we've watched prices go up, interest rates go up, and inflation go up. Four, we've canceled lease sales. We believe all of this combines to what we would call ESP. What does ESP mean? It means energy stupid policy. That's what we have in this country. But that's not all. China is playing in this whole electric vehicle space in ways that we could hardly imagine. Wake up, America. We are ceding our energy superiority to China in ways that you could hardly fathom. But again, don't take my word for it. With the introduction of the electric vehicle, the so-called EV, 
a whole new inventory of resources is required for the parts, including rare earth minerals. Let us be mindful, perhaps, of creating a dependency on China. In an apparent reference to China, John Kerry, President Biden's climate envoy, described to CNBC, quote, it's absolutely correct. There is a cornering of the market with lithium and other rare minerals, unquote. Again, that's not coming from me. That's coming from a person who's sitting in a spot that certainly would have access to this kind of information. And I would take there's a very serious warning. And again, you know, all we need to do is is kind of look at what happened a few years ago in America with regards to the powerful American automobile industry. Before we create this additional dependency on foreign resources whose supply can be pulled, let us be reminded of what happened a few years ago when this American automobile industry was brought to its knees due to a shortage of foreign manufactured microchips. We certainly don't want to make an energy transition to EVs and batteries and not have a well-planned, thought-out access to the market and in the meantime, end up getting those rare earth minerals that we don't have here in a great abundance, have that pulled from us. Again, and when we would have that pulled, again, seeding our energy superiority. Again, when it comes to energy, for me, it's about the red, white, and blue. We need to go from ESP, energy stupid policy, to EFP, Energy First Policy. Let's take a page out of our farmers' playbook. On the strength of our farmers, their innovation and their work ethic, they've taught us a lot. On the backs of our farmers, we feed the world. And when we feed the world, we export democracy and freedoms. We make friends. On the strength of our oil and gas workers, we now have the opportunity to help fuel the world. And by so doing, we can actually improve the environment and the health of our planet. Again, enough about policy. And as we turn our attention to the upcoming holidays and celebrate family, faith, food, and football, on today's show, we want to introduce America to the human element of our oil and gas workers. Not one, not two, but we have three guests in the studio today, all making a living in the USA oil and gas industry, and just really amazing folks. By introduction, we'll, we'll get into, into some of their bios, but we're happy to have uh, Deidre Doucet-Toops, Tully Blanchard, and Leonard Castillo. And for those of you across America, when you can put a Toops, a Blanchard, and a Castillo together, you're serving up a healthy dish of Cajun distinction right there. And these folks come from families that are all salt of the earth, playing hard, working harder, worshiping on Sunday, taking time out of their families to help others as well. And again, uh, I want to thank all of you because all three of you are not only doing your job to make your own zip code better all day and every day, but you're helping others who need help, those uh, among us. And, uh, and while doing it, the facts are very clear. The USA energy industry does, in fact, make this planet safer and healthier by displacing some production that would come from perhaps a foreign source. Again, don't take my word for it. The Obama-Biden administration issued a report in November of 2016 that said if we fail to have oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico, actually U.S. greenhouse gas emissions would go up because we would have to get energy sourced from foreign sources, often with higher 
carbon intensity. So again, thank you for what you all do, because again, it's kind of uh, one of those things that there's not enough attention, there's not enough thanks. I kind of think of oil and gas workers as baseball umpires. You know, nobody comes back from a baseball game and says, wow, those umpires did a great job today. Right. You never hear that. Right. The umpire was in great position. I love his mechanics. Nobody's you know, so nobody really goes out and say, you know, the oil and gas workers do an amazing job in a safe way, an environmentally sustainable way, making sure that we have the energy to fuel our country. And so what USAenergyworkers.com is designed to do is to elevate and celebrate the contributions of our energy workers. And part of that celebration is to make sure that we all know that they are absolutely human. So, again, it's a treat for me to have all three of you in the studio. I want to start with Deidre. You know, Deidre, looking at your background and getting to know you and the things that you've done, what an amazing resume, serving as an executive, helping to uh, to make services available to the industry in a safe, environmentally sustainable and competitive way with tons of integrity. As a female working in what has historically been a male-dominated industry, tell America, when somebody asks you, what does the term, what does the oil field mean to you? What has it meant to you in your family? Thanks, Scott. Yes. So oil field, to me, first, on a personal level, it means a livelihood for me, for my family, from my son works in the oil field. My husband's company is, thrives all of his income from the oil field. So it's, a, it's an industry that provides jobs to hardworking Americans across the United States. Um, but, you know, as you said several different times throughout your intro, it, it's an industry that provides reliable and affordable energy in a safe and environmentally friendly manner across the globe to places that we, something that we might take for granted here in America, but there are undeveloped countries across the world that don't have access to affordable energy. And it's, it's, it's kind of a shame, right, when you, we, we bless with this resource and then we have the public policy that makes it more and more difficult to access. So for you, what was intriguing for me about you is that you're a country girl. Right. You grew up as the daughter of a farmer. Right. So you you uh, at one time or another had a, a one half or nine sixteenths wrench in your back pocket trying to help on the farmer get those things going. And took that kind of work ethic into your studies at the university and then getting into executive management with Superior Energy Services. Special shout out to Superior for the work that you do. But, but more than that, have you have you witnessed when you're the daughter of a farmer? I find farmers are very close to the earth and, you know, they have a high respect for clean air and clean grass. So for you growing up, was that something that was part of your childhood about making sure that we we left the place better than we found it? Well, I think as a as a farmer's daughter, there was always an honorable it was an honorable profession to feed Americans. And 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 it's the same in the oil and gas industry. It's an honorable profession to to do something that serves a purpose to provide a basic need for for the human race to provide energy um, like you said it, it without it we wouldn't have hospitals we wouldn't have schools we wouldn't have half the products you used this morning wouldn't exist and so people show up and they go to work and they 
My my employees, they weld on tools and they, they cut connections. And I don't know if they realize the importance of that, but what they're doing is they're, they we're all coming together to provide this, this energy for the world. And that's so important. That's so important because I do believe that that's part of, even within the industry, that's something that we miss is that we get up every day, we kind of do it, you know, and, and when you start putting all of those little things that happen every day in so many places together— it really, at the end of the day, is while our farmers feed the country, oil and gas workers fuel the country. So I want to bring in our, our next guest, and we're going to continue to have this conversation. Happy to have my dear friend, Leonard Castile, just, again, an amazing guy who can do it all. If you come to our hometown, we're from the same hometown, you come to our hometown, you ask for Leonard Castile, folks might not better tell you where he's at, but ask for MacGyver, and they'll give you directions to his house. This guy can do it all. He's a pilot. He's a certified welder. He can fix anything when he's not working in the oil and gas industry. He's helping somebody with a project uh, at his shop. Uh, by the way, Leonard, uh, I'll be calling you, I think, this weekend. I got a few things on my list I, I need you for. But again, uh, just a tremendous career, a veteran, taking care of people, taking care of the industry. When you, when you hear about oil field, I think Deidre kind of set it up, right? Honorable, right? You know, I'm so glad that you brought that term up because for too long, I think we've kind of heard all of the negativism about this industry, yet we know so many positive things. But to attach the word honorable to it is awesome. And Leonard, your friends and you've been around doing this for a long time. I'm sure you feel like what you do is honorable as well, right? I would think getting up every morning, putting my hard hat and steel toes on is pretty honorable, Scott. Uh, you know, as a kid growing up, as you said, in Brobridge, Louisiana, my, my uh, weekend trek was to Lafayette with the family going up the hill there. And uh, as, you, as you travel from Brobridge to Lafayette on Highway 94 and you look off to your right and you see pump jacks. And as a kid, I didn't know what those were, so I had to ask my parents, what is that? And they said, a pump jack feeds America. That, that's oil. That's what's providing the fuel for this car to go to the movies in Lafayette and, and provides the, the money that we have in the family to be able to buy the tickets to go to the movies in in in, in uh absolutely in Lafayette. That's the old answer you'd all feel there, right? That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so Leonard, when you know, as a kid growing up and being exposed to it, uh, you know, I've seen you at like so many charity events. I mean, you know, this industry not only produces the energy, right, but all of you, all of our guests have been on the front line. This industry just responds, whether it's Habitat for Humanity, whether it's Boys Club, Girls Club, it's uh, helping with scholarships or whatever. Some of the things that you've been involved with, would you better share with America, in a sense, not only maybe a story of where you might have worked in, you know, kind of an event to raise money for less fortunate, but it appears to me that when we knock on the doors of all and gas workers, when it comes to helping others, even when they themselves perhaps were going through tough times because of economic conditions, it seemed like oil and gas was always there for people. It is. And, you know, Scott, for you know, some 50 years that I've been in this industry, and I've been involved in the, in the aviation industry just as well, but mainly the companies that I worked for had aircraft, and the, those aircraft were used for business, but the aircraft were also used to bring people to St. Jude's Hospital, go to Memphis. They were, they were used to transport people from uh, Lafayette to Houston to go to MD Anderson, and we did a lot of charitable events for for people across the industry that and outside of the industry that 
uh, we would not be able to do if we didn't have these companies to support us. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think often when America thinks of the so-called oil company, they reminded of the pain at the pump and that they tend not to see all of the human things that come on it. Let me say this much, that the oil industry itself feels that there's too much pain at the pump. And what the oil industry wants is energy policies that allow us to access the resource so that we can make that product available. But when you take a look at what's coming out of the White House, continue to vilify the American producer. How can it make sense to vilify the American producer while begging OPEC to give us more, right? Doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. I'm appreciative of those things. Lennon, in terms of, as you've seen the industry change, as a guy who's been in it now for five decades, some good times, some bad times, some ups and downs, some families that you've seen kind of living good at one day, and then because of ESP, energy, stupid policy, go through some tough issues economically. Oh, yeah, Scott. You know, in 1981, I can remember the oil industry having 4,500 or so rigs, which were rotary drilling rigs. And uh, these rigs uh, provided a lot of income for a lot of families in South Louisiana. And and the disheartening part to that was that in, in this period from 1981 to present, we've seen a diminish in drilling rigs in the United States down to 647. And that equates to about 300 direct jobs for every rig that's wow. that's that's lost. Yeah. So we have seen uh, good times in the 70s where uh, Lafayette, for instance, had Amoco, we had Pennzoil, we had Exxon. We had all the major oil companies right here in this little community of Lafayette. And all these jobs have gone to Houston. Well, at first they went to New Orleans, then they ended up in Houston, Dallas, and, and internationally abroad. So as a kid growing up in Louisiana, and this providing a good revenue for my family. I'd like to see my kids and grandkids stay here in Louisiana and be, be having jobs uh, brought back to Louisiana well, through your, the oil and gas well, industry. At your age, you start worrying about yeah, right? Yeah, at your I'm, age, I'm, you start worried about uh, I'm, I'm, who's going to be taking not, care of. Uh, and so, so I, I know your kids, I'm and no I put, I put a special special shout-out, because yeah. uh, if not for y'all, it might be me, so y'all take care. I want to bring in our next guest, again, an ordained minister, a veteran, a marketing guy. This guy's unbelievable. And everybody that knows this next guest, when he walks in, he lights up the room. Big personality. Tully Blanchard, thank you for being here. Again, what a treat to have a Toops, a Castile, and a Blanchard all in, in, in one day. I, I'm afraid that, you know, some French might kind of start breaking out in this conversation. But Tully, again, a distinguished member of the oil and gas industry. And when we say oil field to you, when, 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 the, when you hear the phrase oil field, what does that mean to a guy like you that's been doing it your whole life? Well, Scott, first of all, thank you for having us here today and giving us an opportunity to tell our stories, which, you know, everybody in our industry has a story to tell, and not everybody gets that opportunity to be able to tell it, which is important. And it's made up of many, many stories, thousands of great, great stories of people that have persevered through the ups and downs and the cyclical nature of a commodity-driven business, uh, much like farmers that we talked about earlier. So is the oil and gas business uh, driven by commodity flux. And uh, you have to be built different. It's a certain type of person that works in our industry that has a sort of grit that doesn't exist elsewhere. Uh, But honorable people, men and women, that go to work every day humble, filled with gratitude and humility for the opportunity, Um, in the midst of adversity, not to mention the political adversaries, but just the safety and the and the danger of our job every day, and still we answer the call of duty uh, and provide the world 
its energy demands, which, by the way, uh, in the midst of this you know, new green deal or whatever you want to call it, there's still an immense demand for oil and gas. And so we have a lot to do. And as we look to our left and right, the energy sector has uh, transformed. There's not as many of us as there once were. You know, the downturns and the, the political nature of the business and, uh, and really the overall attitude of our business, which is a great calling for us to be ambassadors of our industry and do tell our stories. Yeah, and that's why, you know, we've kind of dedicated this program, right, to, 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 to the workers, right? Because I think the more America gets to know Leonard and Tully and Deidre, the more they see that there's real people. You know, you use the word uh, duty. I want to I come back to that word. Uh, you got a lot of friends in this industry. Do you sense that people who work in this industry more than a way just to make a living, that they actually internally feel like they have a duty to make sure that folks across America have the energy they need to cool and heat their homes and power their automobiles? I do. I, I think it's a large part of what gives them that great pride when they strap up their boots and they put on their hard hat. And I brought this hard hat this morning. Uh, I know we got I, a real hard hat in the studio. We got, right. we definitely got a few hard heads, and we, we, we now we got a hard hat here. Yeah, I, I brought it first to remind us all to to be humble in our conversation and to remember our roots. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I brought it because next to the American soldier fighting on the front lines, it's the greatest symbol of freedom and independence on the planet. Uh, because who straps that on provides that. And um, it's important that we carry that with us, that nobility of, of, of the kind of work that we bring. And it's been tough, right? I mean, if you just for all of us, right, if we're all just having a, just a natural conversation in America, we're getting up, we're listening to, to media, and, and you wonder, you have kind of gone from perhaps maybe a part where, yes, folks felt that way that you just described, and then I know I've had conversations with third generation owners of oil and gas companies who are like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure anymore, Mr. Scott. I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I know my grandfather and my dad had a really good run here, but I, I'm not real sure. And then when you lay out the facts to them about 74% of the energy, the oil that we import into this country has a higher carbon intensity than the production that comes from the Gulf of Mexico. When you lay out the facts that we could make the world safer, the planet healthier, if we had more Gulf of Mexico production rather than less— these lights start going off, and they're like, wow, that's a great elevator speech, and it's, it's, it's true, and it's been researched and documented. And so young people who kind of perhaps had their head filled with a bunch of negative untruths, if we all do a better job in this industry, right, if all of us kind of take it upon ourselves to, to time out from meeting our customers' demands— to making sure our employees and our stakeholders really know about these these really positive things that this industry does, and, and again, you know, it's it's political rhetoric to get on a on a campaign trail and say, well, on day one I'm gonna shut down all drilling. Well, that's not reality, right? And then you kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, we gotta have this, right? And so if we gotta have it, why not get it? 
where it's more environmentally sustainable, where we actually have regulations, we enforce those regulations than here in the USA. But I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say, uh, Judy, I'm impressed with that uh, because I know many of the men and women in the industry. I certainly would have assigned that word to it, but I'm glad that somebody who's closer would do that. Yeah, and Scott, I, I will tell you, besides uh, being an energy worker, I'm a 10-year military veteran. And so I feel like I have the standing to be able to say what I'm about to say. But I also feel like the American energy worker is indeed a veteran and indeed goes out into a dangerous work environment and delivers in a very, very uh, profound way the noble endeavor of producing energy and providing it to the world. Well, I know Leonard is also a veteran. And one of the things I looked at, you know, obviously just observing Veterans Day. So we want to give a special shout out to all of our veterans who have served us. One of the things that I saw recently was a statistic about a very high percentage, I think as, don't quote me on this one, but I think it was as high as like 10% of the energy industry was made up of, of folks who are veterans. Again, we'll need to check and verify that, but I did see you know, a really, really impressive number. So you, I can understand why those values kind of go back and forth, whatever. Leonard, you see that? I know, again, as a veteran, you've been around a lot of folks uh, wearing those hard hats and those steel toe boots. Do you see it as duty as well, that, that folks in the industry generally feel that they're getting up and doing something much bigger than their own zip code? Oh, by all means, Scott. You know, I get up in the morning and I go make crew changes at at heliports and at at boat docks. And I look at the people that are there that are waiting to get on a helicopter, waiting to get on a boat to go off to an offshore platform or a drilling rig. And these, a lot of these guys are veterans. They have the tattoos to show it. Navy, Marines, Army. And um, a lot of them get out there and they work 14 days and they're gone from there, separated from their families. And they come back 14 days later and are glad to be with their families and go enjoy the things that they do, the fishing and the hunting and the things in South Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. Deidre, we holding you here in a position to make sure that we stay professional because, you know, you actually bring all the class to our guest today. As a woman working in the industry, and I realize that your path has been on the administrative side and as a leader, and often you or having to interact with the steel-toed boot wearers, the hard hats. As a, a woman, you know, in a, in a male-dominated industry, have you felt that, you know, if you shoot people straight and you bring your preparation, your dedication, your enthusiasm to the job, how has it worked for you as a female executive in this industry? Well, I think I just I've always been a believer that it doesn't matter, male or female, that we all have gifts and talents. And when we bring those into the workplace and we can contribute and we can we can improve the quality of of what we do. And so I think some of us are are gifted in in different ways and each of our skill sets matter. They make a difference. So what I do is, you know, my job is to make sure that the people in my organization have the resources that they need to provide a quality product and they have a safe work environment to do that in. But without the other skilled workers that, that in my company, then, then they wouldn't have a need for my skill set. Yeah. So everybody's job is equally important, whether we're male or female. It's just important that we all bring that to the workplace and, and do the best that we can. And so there are women who maybe, you know, societal norms may have steered them in a different direction career-wise, but I think that's changing. And I've seen, you know, I've seen women put their steel toe boots on and they're engineers and they're out there on the rigs and they're fantastic. And they, you know, they leave their kids for 
for their 14 and 14 schedules and it's and it's hard just but it's it's equally as hard for a dad to do the same thing right um right. it's sacrifices that that they make and and you know you mentioned um them getting discouraged and and it's the messaging that they're getting today is that you know it, it's hard that when they lose a connection with the work that we're doing and the good that of of the work that we're doing then you know it does get discouraging yes. because the sacrifice is so great and so we have to do a better job of reminding them that that those sacrifices are worth it because they are improving the quality of life for everyone. And thus elevating and celebrating the contributions of our workers, as I said in my opening comments. I believe our teachers are amazing. I think this is a tremendous profession, vocation, and they deserve our gratitude. And I do love the old cliche that if you can read, thank a teacher. But we need to add to that, and we need to all be bootstrapped around that that phrase that if you can read at night in your warm or cool home, thank a teacher and a USA energy worker. So let me also talk a little bit about, Deidre, you indicated to me, I think in part of your comments, that you have a young son who is in this industry. Mm-hmm. How old is he? 36. 36. So we got the next generation there, Right. And he was exposed to you working in the industry, obviously, as a kid growing up, not naming his employer or getting into those kind of things. What's his what's his role in the industry? He's a wildland superintendent. Wildland superintendent. Does he have to travel uh, away from his family? Mm-hmm. He it, does. He works it, offshore. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so so having mom exposed to the industry, uh, he, he perhaps uh, and at 36, maybe kind of right on the edge of where the crazy talk started dominating the news. He found a path. Any grandchildren that are at that age yet where they're trying to figure out and they're like, I'm not real sure if I want to do this and, and be in this industry. Yeah, I, I'm always trying to listen to what 19 and 20-year-olds are saying. I'm not sure what ages of yours. Are you hearing anything where that next generation is either maybe starting to, I guess, have some realistic thinking? Because the previous two years were absolutely insane public policy, right? Right. I mean, it's a tough predicament because, you know, you we've seen the challenges over our careers. And so on one hand, you want to, you know, you want to protect your children and grandchildren from having to go through, through those cycles and the, and the pain and and suffering that that created. And, but we also know, like we said, the honor of the profession and, and what, you know, the need for it in in the world. So, um, you know, sometimes you want to discourage them from, from the industry, but, but we also know that we, we need their brains and we need their minds in the industry and we need to continue to advance uh, the technology and the advancements in the industry. So Yeah, and so, you know, look, I think as we have those conversations, there's always good to bring in uh, third-party credibility on that. And there was a recent article that was written by George F. Will, actually published uh, several days ago in the Washington Post. The opinion, the headline is, the fossil fuel era isn't done yet not by a long shot. And so we all in here know that, right? And so if it's not done, and again, President Biden said the quiet part out loud when he said, we're going to need it. And kind of like, all right, I get it. Y'all won. We need it. We need public policy, right, that recognizes that first, pivots towards access to our resources, and keeping in mind that it's not about us. It's about the American consumer, 
because the American consumer, the American farmer, the American trucker is getting absolutely hammered right now and has been over for the last year, right? These high inflation rates that we've been exposed to, much of that been driven by energy prices. I mean, farming, agriculture is energy intensive. So obviously it all gets rolled up into the final price point, right? So one of the things I thought was uh, interesting uh, is that in July of 2021, the first Independence Day of this administration, they sent out a press release saying that the July 4th family cookout in 2021 was going to cost six cents less than the July family cookout in 2020. Trying to make a comparison, right, that their energy policies were better for the country in 2021 than they were in 2020. Well, those energy policies started taking root. We saw what happened. And then we saw what started happening with food inflation as a result of energy inflation. And since that holiday passed, I've not, and I've looked for another press release coming out of the White House taking credit for lowering the cost of a family dinner, family cookout around the holiday. There's not a lot of things I can guarantee you, but I can guarantee you this. You are not going to see a press release coming out of this White House during the upcoming holidays on how much less russet potatoes cost or sweet potatoes cost or green beans or whatever it may be for that, cranberries or whatever. It's not happening, right, because we've all witnessed it. Now, Leonard, you, uh, you do some of the grocery shopping at your house? I do, and I'm shocked. Are you shocked, right? I mean, it's, it's like like mom and dad would be turning over in the grave finding out that some of the prices, right? Oh, horrible. Yeah. Horrible. My, my, my dad was a very conservative individual. If he went to the grocery store and paid five cents for an item, that was a lot. Yeah, but, yeah. But that's, that's 50 years ago. Well, to the audience that doesn't know Leonard, his daddy might have been shocked at five. Leonard got some of those characteristics with him as well. Yeah, most, most, people, no, most people would say you got your first communion quarter. But you have seen it, right? I mean, oh, definitely. It, 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 it hurts families. It hurts families. So we sell more cars. We build more homes. We have a more robust travel and retail industry. Food costs are lower when we have affordable. Not cheap. I'm not here advocating cheap energy because there has to be enough margin in there to keep it going, right? But this is crazy. And we would all, I think, say to the White House that just follow the facts. The report that was issued from the Obama-Biden administration clearly concluded that greenhouse gas emissions would go up in the United States if we did not have Gulf of Mexico lease sales. But in the name of the environment, this administration canceled those lease sales. But it's exactly the opposite of what the science that their administration produced. So that's really, really odd. And it makes me kind of think, y'all, that maybe there's something nefarious going on here. Because if you follow the science, what you want is you can, you can preach energy transition, you can preach energy addition, whatever it is. But if you have to have it, you might as well get it where it's more environmentally sustainable. And that's here in the USA. And for us to be shutting down those opportunities here and asking OPEC to produce more, that's an insult. It's not a solution. It's an insult, and it's an insult to the USA energy worker, and then it becomes ultimately an insult to the USA energy consumer, right? So we just certainly uh, are very appreciative of the opportunity to gather with you guys. Deidre, um, tell me, what's your, what's your latest thinking? Well, I, you were commenting on asking OPEC to, to substitute for us, and it also compromises our energy security, sure. our national security. 
I mean, it, the industry, the oil field industry in the United States is our path to energy independence, and, and that provides a, a stronger national security. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if I really went into this, but I'm glad you brought it up. I don't, I don't think I did it in my opening part. So we talked a lot about the whole kind of China and Chinese cornering the market on those rare earth minerals. Now, this is a big deal. This is a really, really big deal that's kind of laying down rare below the surface. But this whole push for electric vehicles, we don't have the rare earth minerals to the degree that we need, nor do we have the ability or willingness to process those minerals here. So China has the minerals and they have the processing capacity. So imagine, just for a second, we're never going to have the cheapest labor in the world, and we're fine with that because we want a certain standard of living. But one of the things that we have been able to do in our country is beat the world with our intellectual capacity and our affordable energy. Let them have the cheap labor. We go beat you with our minds, and we go beat you with our superior energy capacity. And when we start giving that away, and it's pretty clear that rare earth minerals, other areas of the planet have been more blessed than we are, and their willingness to process. So you go there, but... But I ran across a statistic that was produced by the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And they've basically kind of put together, I think, along these lines, is that the energy transition is more of a transition, to Deidre's point, the energy transition is more of a transition of our energy security to China than transition to a healthier planet. Right? Why? Why? Unbelievable statistic. Note to policymakers. From data produced by the Energy Policy Research Foundation, since 2015, the United States has reduced net coal plant capacity by 95.6 gigawatts, while China has increased it by 233 gigawatts, India by 46 gigawatts. Just to let you know, right? I think a gigawatt is a million megawatts. So we haven't really changed anything. We only change the location of the emissions. The world, the planet, right, is still having these emissions, but they're coming from China and India and less from over here, making us less competitive and, in a sense, almost giving the keys to China for the next generation, right? So, again, when we talk about ceding energy security to China. Again, looking for the way to kind of sum it up, I would say that's more ESP, energy stupid policy, and we need more EFP, energy first policy. It's amazing how some of our energy policy is so disconnected and tends not to really think of the next generation, but probably more focused on the next election, right? And, and, and look, we, you know, we don't want to get into politics. We don't, we don't tell folks how to vote here or encourage them how to vote a certain way. I think we generally would say to folks, be aware that energy is an important thing as you are making decisions, whether it's about education, medication, transportation, incarceration, administration navigation, let's add energy to that list, right? That's an important thing. But we really haven't changed the, the big impact. America has done their part, but in, in the meantime, ceding our energy security to China cannot be good long-term for this country. Again, as we tell America, uh, share America, real human stories of folks who get up every day and, and try to make sure that America has safe and sustainable energy, a couple of things we would all join together. 
want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Want to wish everyone a, a very safe, happy, healthy, and prosperous 2024. We believe that here in the oil and gas industry, we're doing some great things. And, and I like to say what we do, whether you're in the Permian Basin, you're in the Gulf of Mexico, you're in the Balkan, or you're in the Rockies, you're in the Marcellus, you're in the Utica, wherever you are, I would like to say that with the men and women of this industry do, they get up every day and it's called nation building. You cannot make anything out of electricity. You can use electricity to power things. But think of the 6,000 everyday products that are made from oil and gas, as I said earlier, from eyeglasses to iPhones. That's made from, from oil and gas products. We believe that we are part of building a fabric for this country that makes us stronger from an energy security standpoint economically. And as we've said before, this podcast is about elevating and celebrating the USA energy worker. Nobody does it better than the red, white, and blue. American energy does what we call balance the three E's of energy, environment, and economy. And we do it all day, every day. Tully? Scott, I can't help but take this opportunity to add one more E to your portfolio, and that would be education. And I would, uh, as a military guy, I would have a call to action for all of us, uh, all of us being everyone on the airwaves, everyone in the energy sector across the country, to become an advocate of educating the public, the consumer, about what we do and all that we touch. I think it's critically important. I'm, I'm blessed to be part of a program uh, by LAGCO called the Little Energizers. And we're going to be going to my son's school, Milton Middle School, here pretty soon. And we're going to be educating the entire sixth grade on exactly what we do. Uh, introducing young girls to Barbie dolls or little boys to action figures and telling them at that moment that that is a byproduct of hydrocarbons. And watching that emotional transformation happen in that child for them to be awakened to we're not the big bad ugly wolf that everybody paints us out to be we're critical um and and the word energy transition gets thrown around a lot we're really just going to be inside of an energy mix not a transition uh as ambitious as as whatever side of the aisle is is wanting to pursue at our most robust execution uh, the world currently has a mix of oil and gas of about 87%. And if we were successful in accomplishing all of these ambitious attempts to do what we're going to do, and we, and we do have a seat at the table and we'll be part of it, like Mr. Leonard talked about. But if we executed perfectly... In 20 years, we'd still only reduce 87% to maybe 83%. We're talking about a small needle. And we just, as a society, need to wake up to that. Um, and I think that's important, and it's through the of education. You're absolutely right. Again, want to wish folks a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. want to encourage everybody to visit USAEnergyWorkers.com. There is a nonpartisan petition there, electronic petition that you can, 30 seconds, lend your name to this national voice, this national effort to try to bring common sense and recognize the historic uh, contributions of our USA energy workers. So again, I want to thank all of our guests and, and do my part on behalf of Diane and I and our five kids and our six grandkids. I think I did one, two, three four, five, seven, seven grandkids, uh, and uh, just wish you guys a, a very, very happy holiday season, Merry Christmas, and keep on doing what you're doing. Maybe we'll finish with this. You got one word. I'm going to give you one word. 
I'm going to start first, and then we'll kind of go around from left to right. So give you a little time. I'm going to say, what is the one word that you think describes what energy workers do? I'm going to give you what I think I'm going to use, too. I think energy workers deliver. I think energy workers rock. Okay? So, Tully, what's the one word energy workers do? Persevere. Persevere. Leonard? Hard work. That's two words, but it's hyphenated. He's from uh, my hometown. We good. Deidre? I say quality. Quality. Okay, there you go. So, so America, USA Energy Workers are here to help make your life better. We do an amazing job. Pay attention to the facts. What you hear is not all truth on folks who are trying to eradicate our industry. We believe, as others are now saying, there's a lot of runway. Let's do it the right way. Nobody does it better than the red, white, and blue. USAenergyworkers.com. Visit us. Thank you very much. This has been Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. For more episodes or to find out more, visit us online at OGGN.com.